kick off episode 343 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Shadowland. It comes from a surf band based out of Perth, Australia. The band's called Day of the Dead. It's from their album Dead If You Don't. Last year, they gave me permission to play their music on the show, and I figured, you know what? I never did, so better late than never. Check out this album. Look them up over on Bandcamp at dayofthedead1.bandcamp.com or check out their website dayofthedead.com.au When you're done listening to this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook I want to welcome you to the show Got a lot to get to this week A lot to share and I'm really excited So first of all, thanks to everybody who gave me some well wishes on Facebook when I was talking about the severe head cold that I had and I'm still kind of struggling with it a little bit and I, and I figured out why it hit me. It's because I started editing the main conversation for this episode of the podcast. You see, this past summer, I recorded a whole bunch with a whole lot of people and put it in the virtual can so I can dish it out later in the year. Well, last June, I also had a pretty bad head cold or allergy attack or something and if you listen to the recording that you're about to hear, You're going to pick it up in my voice a little bit. I think I gave myself another cold somehow by listening to myself. That's how colds work, right? The recording I'm talking about is the conversation that I had with author Micah S. Harris, also known as Micah Harris. Kind of depends on where you look. Look up Micah S. Harris on Amazon. That's the best place to find his work. There is another writer we think out there with the same name and somebody who may have just recently died with the same name. He's still alive and well. And he's on the show. Talk about a movie from the late 1950s, a low-budget mad scientist kind of sort of zombie affair. Okay, not really a zombie movie, but there are zombies in it. We're going to be talking about The Woman Eater. This is a movie that he brought to the table. He contacted me and said, hey, do you want to talk about this? And I had no idea what it was. It was a first-time viewing for me. I had a blast. You have to stay tuned to hear all about it. We're going to talk a little bit about Micah's influences as well and what he's doing as an author, his work in the new pulp subgenre. And we're going to talk about a release that he has a special deal for anybody who's listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio and, well, anybody who happens to be on Amazon. The Frequency of Fear is a short story, short... Uh, is it novella length? I'm not really sure what the word count limits are, but it's a short story. It's a lot of fun. We talk about it in the recording. You can get it for your Kindle right now. It's free. You don't have to belong to Amazon Prime or Kindle Unlimited or anything like that. As long as you've got a Kindle, you can buy it for free. Go check it out. It's a great read. Anyway, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some of the other things that he's got going on, his influences, his history, and of course, we're going to play the Classic Five. That's not all we've got in this episode. We've got some feedback as well, and I want to dive into some of that right now. We have an email from Chris W. Now, last week he wrote in, we talked a little bit about Sir Cecil Creep, and I commented about Dr. Gangreen being a big fan, and that's how I knew Sir Cecil Creep, and well, Chris responded, Derek, it was a thrill to hear my email read on your show. Just a few things in response to your comments. I actually got to meet Dr. Gangreen at this year's Halloween Hootenatty on September 30th in Nashville. This is a multi-band Halloween party that he hosts every year. I got to see the Creeping Cruds for the first time, and they did not disappoint. We talked about Sir Cecil Creep and what he meant to us as kids, as Larry and I are close to the same age. He's a very nice guy. He once showed the video for the ghastly ones, Hall and Hearse, on his Creature Feature show, which got me into any surf music with a quote-unquote spooky vibe. That's another thing that I like about your show. These days, I've been watching Sven each Saturday on MeTV, and I've been toying with the idea of trying my hand at a few model kits again, if time permits. 
I also pick up scary monsters and Monster Bash magazine on a regular basis. So once a monster kid, always a monster kid. Thanks again. P.S. I hope my contest entry wasn't disqualified because it's technically not. You know what? We'll talk about the contest later. Chris, thank you for writing in. Really appreciate it. This is cool. You know, I love when I find out that people who listen to the show know each other outside of the show, like having met Dr. Gain Green. That's one up on me. I've never had a chance to meet him in person. We communicate by email all the time, and we occasionally Skype and get him on the show, but I've never met him in person, so that's awesome. I've heard about the Halloween Hootenanny every year. He tells me all about it because it's something that he loves to do. He's very proud of what he does there, and rightly so. It sounds like an amazing time. Glad you had a chance to to meet him and hang out with him a little bit and talk horror hosts, and you're watching Sven Gulli now, so I mean, that's, that's awesome. Sven Gulli's the man. I have another email. This one came in from listener Russell K. Uh, first of all, he sent some photos. He went to the convention Spooky Empire in Florida, and he met with Rico Browning. These photos are awesome. I ought to reach out to him and ask him if it's okay if I share these photos uh, with the listeners of Monster Kid Radio, because they're pretty awesome. Anyway, he writes, thought I'd pass along some pics of us meeting Rico Browning at Spooky Empire here in Florida last weekend. It was an honor to meet him. I got to speak quite a bit with his daughter, who was there with him. She told me he would be appearing at Springfest at Silver Springs in March. We're going to try to get up there to see him again. As always, thanks for the wonderful show. I look forward to it every week. Hope you're well. Sincerely, Russell. Okay, the pictures that he sent, it's not just him with Mr. Browning. It's his entire family, including their child decked up and dressed as the creature from the Black Lagoon. You, know, you have the plastic Gilman mask in the suit. It's awesome. I, <laughs> that's so cool. That's Monster Kid parenting done right. Russell, thank you for writing in, man. We also have an email from graphic artist Alistair Hughes. Hi, Derek. I just had to tell you how much I enjoyed your conversation with Dwight about the Son of Frankenstein. He's always a fascinating guest, and his impersonations are uncanny. I love the detail you both dived into, and the biggest revelation for me was the onset difficulties caused by that one particular line. You'll have to go back a couple of weeks to listen to the episode to know what he's talking about. When I was a teenager, I would have a group of friends around my house every Sunday night for New Zealand's own late-night horror movie screenings, The Sunday Horrors. I was often secretly scandalized by their insistence of poking affectionate fun at the films, as I fancied myself a genuine devotee of these creaky old chillers. And I remember once throwing something of a sulk when a screening of Son of Frankenstein was quote-unquote ruined by a barrage of teenage innuendo. Igor delivered his unforgettable line, he does things for me, and you could have heard my friend's war of laughter from space. How amazing to have them vindicated all these decades later when you and Dwight disclosed that even the cast had difficulty with that line. Now I'm going to have to apologize to them all. Now, Alistair also shared with me some information about a project he's got coming up. Can't really talk about it too much because it's not going to be released until next year, but stay tuned. <laughs> it's going to be awesome what he shared with me. And yeah, we'll have him on the show proper to talk about it once we're closer to the actual release. Uh, he wraps up with a PS, please. Can we have another married with monsters for Christmas? Well, my wife and I, we actually are going to be doing that. I mentioned that earlier in a previous episode, Stranger Things Season 2 began. It's just a matter of she and I being able to coordinate our energy to sit down with the recorder and watch Stranger Things 2. Uh, scheduling, I mean, we can kind of match up. That's not a problem. It's just a matter of making sure we're both at the same levels of uh, ready to go-ness, I suppose is the best way to put it. But yeah, it is coming. Stay tuned for that. 
Now, I think I'm caught up on email feedback, but I'll double check. And if you send something you haven't heard on the show, let me know, and I'll make sure that we get it into a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. But I do have some voicemails. Hey, Derek, this is Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV. I've been listening to your podcast for the last couple of months or so and have been really enjoying it. What a great show. I love all the clips and the old trailers. I just listened to It, The Terror from Beyond Space. While you cover the big screen monsters, I cover the small screen, specifically 70s and 80s TV, and just finished my own episode on creepy TV monster movies of the 70s, where I covered the Night Stalker, Gargoyles, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, and Trilogy of Terror. I must warn you, if you try to verify any of these accounts, you will find it quite impossible. Keep up the great work, and if any of your listeners want to check it out, uh, I'm found at Forgotten.tv, and it's on any podcast app. Thanks a lot. Glad to hear from you, Chris. It's awesome to hear from fellow podcasters. I'm going to check out your podcast. It sounds cool. ForgottenTV.Podbean.com is where people can check it out. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Looks like it's a relatively younger show. There's only 15 episodes, but man, I'm looking at the history here of the show, different show notes, and looks like you've covered quite a bit, and I am looking forward to diving into this and subscribing to it and going through the archives. Thanks for calling in. Really appreciate it, and uh, maybe we can coordinate something and have you on the show at some point. Hey, Derek. It's Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.Club and the Classic Horrors Club podcast with me and Rich Chamberlain. I enjoyed the Son of Frankenstein episode with Dwight Kemper. That's currently my favorite Universal Frankenstein film, although that changes depending on the weather and my mood. Every time, though, I think that the original or Bride might overtake it, I hear something like your podcast and Sun shoots right back to the top. I also enjoyed the It, the Terror from Beyond Space episode with Scott Morris. You know, I saw it for the first time only last year, and it had always slipped by me too. Well, hopefully the episode will help get the word out because it's a great movie, probably my favorite late 50s sci-fi adventure. I also want to comment on the Google Calendar that you and Scott share for upcoming movies on television. You know, I use one of those too, but it feeds into my blog, ClassicHorrors.Club. When you visit the site, there's always a running list of what's coming up on TCM, MeTV, and I recently added Comet TV. I hope it's useful for anyone who wants to look out a few days and plan their viewing schedules. Finally, I'm excited about the rest of your November schedule. You'll be talking about two movies with which I'm not too familiar, plus one that I've never really liked. I'm sure, though, that you and Dan Day Jr. will point out everything that's great about the creeping flesh. I've got to run now. Rich and I are recording our podcast today. We'll be discussing Donovan's brain and its different incarnations. By the time you play this message, it should be live on the Phantom Podcast Network over on downrightcreepy.com and at classichorrors.club. Thanks a lot, Derek. Talk to you soon. Take care. As always, it's awesome to hear from Jeff from ClassicHorrors.Club or the Classic Horrors Club. A couple of things about Jeff. Uh, he is one of the men behind the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Well, he mentioned it. He and Rich Chamberlain, the monster movie kid, talked about Donovan's brain in their most recent episode. It is out now. I have to admit that I haven't listened to it yet, but it is on my iPod, and I do plan on listening to it tomorrow. So... I'm sure it's going to be great, though, because your previous episodes have been knocking it out of the park. You guys are awesome. Jeff also, however, had a personal release come up, and I don't think he mentioned it in the recording because I don't think it had happened by the time he had sent it in. 
We Belong Dead is a magazine. It's produced in the UK. You can get it here in the States through Amazon, that sort of thing. It's about monster movies. goes up through the 70s, I believe, and I think they might even dabble in the 80s a little bit. So it's a little outside of our wheelhouse, but there's some good stuff in there. I've got several issues myself. It's a great magazine. Well, every once in a while, they put out a special edition, and recently they just put out the book Monsters. We're British, you know, a celebration of Peter Cushing. It's a collection of essays about the man, and Jeff Owens contributed an article to this magazine as well. You can check out unsunghorrors.co.uk. I haven't read it myself, but I'm sure it's awesome because the We Belong Dead crew, they, they don't know how to do something that's not awesome. So check that out. And Jeff, congratulations on getting into that special edition. Let's talk a little bit about what you called in about Son of Frankenstein. Man, it's got it all. It's got Karloff. It's got Lugosi. It's got some really cool direction. It's got some great architecture, man. You, Oh, it's so good. But the first Frankenstein is, is so iconic. And Bride, yeah, I go back and forth as well. It's so hard to pick just one, right, as your favorite. And as you said, ask me again in 30 minutes, and I'll give you a different answer as to what my favorite monster movie is or Frankenstein movie is. If the Terror from Beyond Space was a lot of fun to talk about with Scott, I don't podcast with Scott enough. Uh, I loved chatting with him and talking about that movie. And man, that monster, it's just iconic. You know, one of the things that I regret, did I mention this on the show before? Monster Bash this past summer, as soon as the doors opened, I remember I did a loop in the merch room, in the dealer's room, right off the bat, before I did anything else in terms of like sitting down to see a movie or, or checking out celebrities and that sort of thing. I just wanted to see what was there. And I remember passing a table and some guy was selling action figures for $10 of the monster from it, the terror from beyond space. And I thought, you know, I need to remember this. I need to come back. I just got here. I can't be blowing all my money. You know what I had right then. I, I need to come back and get this. Every time I went back, they were gone. You know, somebody else had snatched them up. I go on Amazon right now, 30 bucks. That's what they're selling for right now. So I don't know how this guy was selling them for 10 bucks, but whoever picked him up, they got a heck of a deal. That monster is just too cool. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode and I'm glad you enjoyed the movie. Okay, that's our feedback. If you want to email us and be one of the cool kids, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. I'll go over that contact information again at the end of the show. That'll be after the conversation you hear with me and Micah Harris, a.k.a. Micah S. Harris, a.k.a. I don't know, just a guy who really likes monster movies that have killer plants in them. We're going to be talking with Micah, and then I've got some other things to talk about as well. That's all going to happen right after this. It's a new height in fright. What of animals to do with this? The man's jugular vein was bitten, clean through. Never before such diabolic evil as the skull. I found in the morning that the skull had been removed. Who removed it? those who use its power. Invisible beings, spirits from a strange 
evil world. The moving skull spreads its shrieking terror everywhere. Casting its hypnotic trance over all who fall under its hideous shadow. Turning a lover into a killer at its evil command. Never before such blood-curdling horror as the skull. Dr. Lee Cushing, welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. movies were made. Adventure to make you wonder if it's true while your eyes convince you that it is. Truly the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. Hey kids, Woo! looky what I got for you. 
A free Rasputin beard as you enter the theater to shiver at the greatest double scare pair anywhere. Rasputin the Mad Monk <laughs> and the Reptile, both in color from 20th Century Fox. Look out, Street, here they come. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. All right, Monster Kid Radio listeners, I've got another new voice on the show. Now, he's written in, and I've read an email, I think at least one email of his on the show in the past, but this is the first time I've actually got him on the show in, in person, live. I mean, it's recorded, but anyway, I've got Micah Harris here on the show, and he is an author and... When you look at his author page over on Amazon, you see titles like The Vampires of Paris from Tales of the Shadow Men. He appeared in that collection. Uh, Ravenwood, Stepson of Mystery, The Frequency of Fear, The Eldritch New Adventures of Becky Sharp. He sounds like somebody we have to have on Monster Kid Radio. So let's do it. Micah, welcome to the show. Hey, Derek. Thanks for having me so much. You reached out to me a while back, and I have read your Frequency of Fear, and you reference Fear Chamber in that. That's great. Oh, yeah. It's a fantastic movie, man. Love that movie. Underrated. Yeah. Underrated. Very much so. King of the world. That's <laughs> the, <laughs> the last immortal line. Yeah. King of the world. Before Leo said it in Titanic, it was in the fear chamber. There we go. So, obviously, <laughs> Mike is an author. How long have you been writing? Uh, wow, Derek. I've been knocking at it rather steadily since the mid-'80s. It's, it's, it's been a long haul. I have you know, have not been an overnight success, to say the least. In the late 80s, I almost sold a novella to Weird Tales. Oh, wow. And Yes, and they just had just bought a similar story. It was a long vampire story, and they were a quarterly. And so the guy passed on it, but said, try us again later. And when later came around, they, I think it was a different editor by then, and he didn't want it. So I had that, you know, great bit of encouragement and then pretty much dead silence for the next decade or so. Oh, man. Uh, Yeah, until in 2003, I published my graphic novel with Michael Gatiss, who is the artist or was and is again now on what was then called Alias, but is now Jessica Jones. It's the basis of the uh, Netflix series. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, Michael was the artist on that. He was drawing it back then. Jessica Jones goes back that far, although then it was known as Alias, but had nothing to do with the TV show that was popular then. Uh, And Michael and I actually got together with him through uh, a gentleman named Nathan Massingale. Nathan has worked uh, as an inker for uh, for DC Comics, Marvel Comics, and uh, he got us together, and Nathan edited uh, the graphic novel, which is called Heaven's War, and uh, it's still available uh, digitally as well as in print, and basically uh, it pits uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and Charles Williams of the Oxford Inklings against Aleister Crowley. 
They are in a race to solve the real-life unsolved mystery of Rennes-le-Chateau. And um, Charles Williams is the main character. Tolkien and Lewis are sort of you know, supporting characters, backing him up. Are you familiar with Charles Williams, the author? Not so much. Not as much as the other two. Yeah, yeah he is sort of, there's a book just out about him now called The Third Inkling, although fairly he should probably actually be maybe the fourth or <laughs> the Inkling. I oh, think okay. there's another one who actually would rank, Dorothy Sayers actually would rank higher than that, I think. But he came in late and later in the game. He was not nearly as popular, but he did, was one of the early writers of supernatural novels that put the supernatural in the present day. Oh, okay. Um, when, uh, yeah, and... Uh, but his stuff, it can be difficult reading, challenging reading, at least it was for me, his prose style. But he had a fan in T.S. Eliot. Uh, the poet T.S. Eliot was a big fan. And uh, so was C.S. Lewis. And uh, that's how Williams got pulled in. But Williams had this colorful background with the Order of the Golden Dawn. And then uh, he became a, uh, a Christian author. But even his theology is, is offbeat. So he was a m- the more colorful character between Tolkien and Lewis, uh, although those guys are you know much better well-known for a reason. Sure. But he was the more colorful character. So I was able finally to get that published through Image Comics. came out about 2003. And since then, I've been I've been writing. I've been uh, doing a lot more prose than comics, as it as it turns out. You know, it took a while. It took a while. Uh, so, you know, my advice to aspiring young writers is don't get in a hurry <laughs> 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 and keep writing. Yeah, yeah. I, I listen to a lot of writing podcasts. I'm a writer myself, and and I always hear the. Yeah, it was an overnight success. It just took me 20 years to get there. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. I guess it's um, perhaps somewhat more typical than true overnight successes, you know. Right. I love, I mean, looking at the different types of stories if you, that you've written, there's such a strong monster kid influence and before we started recording, you were telling me about something that has elements of King Kong and the most dangerous game and just dinosaurs. I mean, come on. Yeah. Has the monster kid thing been something you've been working on in your writing for a while? Yeah, I guess, you know, I guess they say, you know, write about what you know. And there you go. There you go. And I I guess know a lot of things vicariously through watching movies. Uh, Since I was (laughs) a kid, I, I came in at the end of the, I guess, what is the, the official or, our classic monster kid period, you know, that started in the fifties. And, uh, I came in at, as a kid in the late sixties and, you know, in the early seventies. And, uh, we had a show called shock theater every Saturday night. And, uh, the host was Dr. Paul bear. And, uh, that was where, you know, I would watch the classic universal movies and I have never forgotten you know, this we're talking we're going back to like nineteen seventy one, maybe, seventy two. I have never forgotten that my report card grades were down on something and my mother punished me by not letting me stay up and watch House of Dracula. Oh no. <laughs> I'm shocked there, yes. And I did let me know, I did not see House of Dracula, I don't think, until maybe until it became available on VHS. So 
I <laughs> I was very upset. Oh man! And, and and have not forgotten it until you know even to this day. You know, I mean, my mom and I, we've worked it out since then. But, oh, okay. Well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, you know, I love the stuff. And, you know, I mean, I was growing up at a time when you were lucky to have four channels. <laughs> you know, I remember my first time in King Kong, is, the original Kong is my favorite movie. And uh, I do homage to that in Jim Anthony, The Hunters. That's the book you were talking about with er, a moment ago. We count Zaroff and Hunting Dinosaurs with Jim Anthony, who is a was a Doc Savage derived character who fell into the public domain, and now uh, Airship Twenty Seven is a um, uh, new pulp press that has resurrected Jim. And um, I did a novella that put Jim and Count Zaroff hunting dinosaurs on Skull Island, where they come across Carl Denham's crew uh, en route to meet their leading man there on the same location. <laughs> and um, Carl is my, favorite, is my favorite film, and I got to do a homage to that. And also I do homage uh, Kong in my Ravenwood story, Return of the Dugpa. There is a, uh, a character in there uh, and other references to, uh, to King Kong. Uh, I love that, um, that movie so much. But the first time I saw it, it was an early Saturday morning, and as the world moved around the sun, we would start losing the signal from where it was coming in. It would fade in and fade out. And I remember I'm looking at it black and I'm a set of fuzz. You know, that's all I can see, but the audio's coming in. So I hear Carl Denham's men being slaughtered, and I can't see what's going on, you know. And we had the old rotary antenna back in those days. Uh, you have any idea what that is, young oh, man? <laughs> young man. No, I know. I'm not that young. All right, come on. You know <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that was where, like, you got little stickers that you could put where Channel 9 was, northwest. And you would turn that <laughs> dial. And your antenna, so, you know, I, my antenna was probably chasing the world around the sun, trying to watch King Kong trying to see it you know it was such a and it wasn't until about a year later that i was actually able to see it the clear picture but yeah yeah i mean definitely monster kid through and through over here i love the idea of just trying to you know i gotta keep watching i gotta keep watching just trying to fiddle with those <laughs> dials and trying to and, and just oh, hearing yeah. the slaughter of denim's men i mean that, that's got to be even worse than actually seeing it just hearing it yeah, oh. yeah it was like what's going on yeah. <laughs> what's going on why can't i see this you know what's happening life isn't fair yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um so yeah, yeah. So I put yeah a lot of those references. There's a lot in the frequency of fear intentionally. A lot of crossover references in that, which um, you know one of the things that it focuses on that you wouldn't get from the title from that is the tradition of plant monsters in horror movies. The frequency of fear is thick in man-eating plants of some variety you know which we're definitely going to talk about it's one of that's that's what we're doing here today but you know i don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here you you know what we got to do with you when we have a new person on the show we have a game we got to play 
Oh, that's right. Oh, uh, yeah, right. yeah. I've been thinking about this. That's right. The five questions. That's right. The classic five. So, for listeners who have never heard this before, the classic five is a card game that we have. Each card has a yes or no, this or that style question. There's no wrong answers, and they're all about classic monster movies. It's a rapid fire type game that we play with new guests here on the show. It gives you a chance to get to know our guests a little bit better. Micah, are you ready to play the classic five? I guess as ready as I'm going to be. Let's let's go. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. Here we go. One more shuffle. Okay. Card number one. Who is your favorite mad scientist? Wow. My favorite mad scientist? Yeah. I guess would have to be Peter Cushing's Dr. Frankenstein. Oh, the man. Team mm-hmm. Peter right here is solidly. I mean, everybody knows that here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. 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 He would, he would be it. He, he and his mad Russo genius <laughs> that, uh, that comes through with him. Um, but uh, he's just uh, fantastic. Whether he was the bad guy or the good guy, he could do it all. There we go. All right, card number two. What is your favorite mummy movie? Mummy movie? Oh wow! It's got to be a Karis movie, a Karis movie. Oh wow! There. Which one do I like the best? I know I'm fond of the Mummy's Hand. But I don't know. I guess, man, they're just all so bizarre. I, I don't know. It's somewhere between the mummy's hand and the mummy's tomb, and I think I'm safe in saying that because half of the mummy's tomb is the mummy's hand. Uh, <laughs> 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 you, you remember, like a third of that movie is is, is stock footage, as our main character remembers. And, right. Uh, so I guess I'm going to be safe and say the mummy's tomb because that way I get both the mummy's hand and the mummy's tomb. And, okay, uh, fair but, enough. <laughs> but but I am but I am very fond of Tom Tyler's interpretation of Karis, and uh, you know he sort of anticipates Christopher Lee's performance, you know, which is a lot more physical. By the time Channy got the role, you know, Karis is all stove up and busted up, and, you know, and 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 sort right. of slinking around. But when Tom Tyler's getting jacked up on that, you know, tantalies and stuff, or the or the threat of him that he'll become an indestructible weapon, I thought that was just really um, a neat idea. Uh, and uh, and again, one that I, by the way, I mean, I do reference that and do a rift on that in the Eldridge New Adventures of Becky Sharp. Um, nice. Yes, if you ever want to see Tarzan versus Karis on jacked up Tana leaves, both of them jacked up on Tana leaves, Tarzan and Karis. Uh, check out the Elder Jew Adventures of Becky Sharp. Uh, wow. Okay yeah. then. Uh, although, although of course he's not Tarzan there, but right. Well, registered reasons, but wink, wink, nod, nod. We know, we all know who Lord Eugenides is. Yeah. So the Mummy's Tomb, I guess. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Uh, question number three. Who, Werewolf of London or the Wolfman? Ah, oh, the Wolfman. Yeah, 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 the Wolfman definitely. That I was such a Lon Chaney Jr. fan as a kid. I even had what I call my Larry Talbot shirt. I had. I noticed that probably in a picture of famous monsters, that in one of those movies, Lon Chaney as Larry Talbot is wearing a shirt that has a pocket on each breast, double-breasted pocket. And as a kid, I had a shirt like that. And I thought of it as my Larry Talbot shirt. Uh, I still remember that shirt. <laughs> After all, again, we're talking about like 40 years. I remember that. Of course, I also had my Mark Twain suit as a kid. Uh, 
Uh, uh, didn't we all? I, yeah, I, don't know. I guess <laughs> so. Yes, I guess I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, I guess. <laughs> all right. All right, card number four. Oh, the seventh voyage of Sinbad or Jason and the Argonauts. Oh, wow. It had to be Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, now, I thought you were going to say Golden Voyage of Sinbad. And oh. to me, that one would trump seven for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Carolyn Monroe, of course, being <laughs> a major one. Oh, she's amazing. She's amazing. Yeah, but the whole tone of that Golden Voyage is just so different and so actually more adult for what Harry Housen normally put out. And then they followed it up with, of course, with Eye of the Tiger, which was has some interesting visuals in it, but it it to me it story wise it was a step backwards or two from what they had done with Golden Voyage. But between that Seventh Voyage and Jason the Argonauts, yeah, I have to say Jason, you know, that movie, the skeleton fight at the end, done by one man. It yeah. is just one of the most incredible feats of cinema ever. And in this era of, you know, CGI and how many technicians it takes to make a movie, it's unthinkable, you know, that one guy pulled all that off. Just incredible. I mean, it's like Michelangelo doing the Sistine Chapel feeling by himself, you know. So if for no other reason that we talk Jason, although, of course, the Valley of the Giant statues, and also that movie has my favorite Hercules in it. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, the performance of the older Hercules, you know, an older Hercules in that, and the guy who's not so much Steve Reed's beefcake and all, but just a good actor. So, yeah, so for, for no other reason for that Hercules and the skeleton fight, Jason and the Argonauts. Fair enough. All right, final question, card number five. What is your favorite classic monster movie sequel? Favorite classic monster movie sequel. Oh, wow. What would be my favorite sequel? Well, I think I might have to say, well, obviously, Bride of Frankenstein is the one. I think the one that sure. everybody would say. And I also the, understand the first monster movie sequel. Uh, the first time a monster ever came back. Uh, was with Bride of Frankenstein. Huh, and, I hadn't really thought about that. But uh, it, yeah, huh. yeah, it's interesting that somebody pointed that out. Yeah, that was the first time. Now we take it for granted, but that was the first time a monster returned. But having said that, I do have to add about, I think I really like the first half of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman before that movie takes a right turn into wacky land. Um, <laughs> the first <laughs> half... I mean, when those guys go in and they're robbing the tomb, you know? Oh, it's it's that's gorgeous. That whole, oh, the resurrection. Yeah. I've said it before. The resurrection of Laurie Talbot and that scene. Oh, that's, that's such a great best, scene. That's the isn't it? The long fingernails yeah. on him. And uh, yeah, that's great. And then the whole pursuit of him up to the point <laughs> that, you know, the the monster comes in. And even that has its charms, including the, the musical number. Uh, a Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, uh, which, by the way, that that musical number, uh, a friend of mine has pointed out something in that one of the lyrics that's become a bit of a philosophical uh, reminder to me of uh, to put things in perspective. Uh, and the musical number from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, one of the lines of she is, 
life is short, but death is long. And, <laughs> and you know, that's pretty profound coming from the musical number from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come for the monsters, stay for the philosophy. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Uh-huh. Well, all right. Well, that that's the classic five. How do you feel? I feel uh, I feel pretty good. Right on. Pretty good. Pretty good. You know, I actually it just hit me though. I probably should have said Revenge of the Creature for my favorite scene. Let's see. Now you're just sucking up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I could talk creature for hours. Everybody knows that though at this point. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that is the classic five, and and you know before we got to that, you started talking about man eating plants, and I mean that's what we're talking about here today. We got to talk about a movie from 1958, something that I didn't think we'd ever talk about here on the show for whatever reason. It just isn't something that I thought would would come up. The woman eater. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I got to tell you, I I watched this on the same day that I saw Wonder Woman in the theater. Talk about a weird double feature! Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, the yin and yang. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of women in cinema. <laughs> yeah, that that was um, that was special. Anyway. <laughs> Along the jungles of the Amazon, the evil forces of witchcraft and black magic still rule the native heart, bringing sudden terror to the people who wander its primeval forests. With this, our people make live the dead. Master, this is good. Starring George Kaloris as Dr. Moran, a man obsessed with the power of evil. In his ruthless hands lies the secret that could solve the mystery of life and death. She'll become part of the plant. And from it, I'll get the serum to bring the dead back to life. Ever since you came back from that horrible journey five years ago, you've been different. Yes, you're right, Margaret. I've changed. I believe you're doing something wicked. There's that iron door that I mustn't go through. I dream of it. What does it lead to? The feeling of evil is all around them. A forbidding past becoming part of the frightening present. Those who enter this house of fear stay to face a jungle of terror. I feel not to me in here. I'm frightened. Way up in the Amazon jungle, there are people who put their hands into the mouth of death and snatch its victims back. I learned their secret. I told you. The world will ring with my name. The man who can bring back the dead. You're mad! <laughs> the Woman Eater from 1958. I admittedly don't know a heck of a lot about this movie. This is, what was it, Columbia that put this out? Is that right? They released it. They released uh, it? They okay. do not, they cannot take the blame of having made it. Um, <laughs> it was an independent film, and okay. it was called Fortress Films. But right. Fortress Films was distributed in England through Eros. Films, which is not as skanky as that may sound with that title, <laughs> but they think there's a there's a famous statue of the goddess in Piccadilly Square that they think its studio was named after. 
Okay, and, okay. And, and Eros, like so many major studios in the United States, pretty much started as a chain of movie theaters uh, before they got into making movies, and they would distribute independent movies that the majors wouldn't handle. And for some reason, no major studio would touch The Woman Eater. I can't understand it. But Eros Films, thankfully... Wow, that's a, that's a missed opportunity, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but thankfully, Eros Films was there to step in and lift it up. And in some way, they were able to hoist it off on Columbia and in the States. I don't know how they pulled that off. Uh, the most significant genre film Eros did, though, was The Giant Behemoth. Uh, okay, the, all yeah, right. Yeah, the last giant monster movie from King Kong's Willis O'Brien, uh, which was a basic remake of his protege Harry Housen's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And, of course, it has the most perhaps redundant monster title ever, The Giant Behemoth, as opposed to what? <laughs> The kind of average size behemoth. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the medium size. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. So yeah. So the answer is Fortress Films made it. Eros Films saved it. And Columbia Films threw it upon the American public every year. <laughs> well, and then when they released it over here, they did it as a double bill with the H Man, which is a Japanese horror movie, and I have no idea how those two played together. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, and the H Man is kind of sort of well regarded, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's a it's. I mean, not that the Woman Eater isn't, but <laughs> it's a different kind of good movie. <laughs> Let's hope the H Man played first. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of interesting. Uh, Interesting, interesting combination, to be sure. Well, The Woman Eater, it's, what, just barely over an hour. So, I mean, they had to package it with something, I guess, to book it. And it's an odd little film. It starts out, I feel like, as one thing. And then after this, for such a short movie, they spend a lot of time with somebody who's not really one of the main characters. And then we jump ahead five years, and now we're in a completely different setting, and there's only one character that we saw before that's now here. It's <laughs> it's this weird kind of storytelling choice that I didn't expect in a short, low-budget monster movie. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I have to say that you kind of have to give them props for is in that first half, when the expedition is being mounted at the Explorers Club in London, where our mad scientist protagonist, Dr. Moran, has heard about the miracle-working juju that brings the dead back to life in the jungle. Is this the Amazon? I guess it's the Amazon, isn't it? I, I guess so. I think so. Or they're supposed to be, yeah. And if you remember, there's a young, good-looking guy who perks right up and says, hey, I think I'm going in on that expedition. And, you know, and you expect he's going to be the romantic lead and they get to the jungle, and they have barely walked through stock footage of crocodiles sliding into the ocean in a plastic jungle. Ten minutes, and he steps out and gets a spear in his chest, and he's dead. Right. <laughs> he's gone, you know? So it's like, well, wow, that was kind of brave, you know, in storytelling. Or it may have been the actor saw where this movie was going. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it out. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it was Kill pretty shocking because the right. Well, no, the guy steps up. And he's like, yeah, "I'm going to go." And you know, as soon as they get to the to the jungle and they they go through that whole bit, like you said, the stock footage, and he 
tries to interrupt whatever ceremony is about to happen. I mean, I figured that would be the trigger that would start the story, not necessarily end that guy's story. <laughs> you know? It's like, wow, that's um, okay. So who's our lead now? I, I guess it's Dr. Moran, at least at this point, who's played by an actor that has done some more well-regarded films. Uh, he was in Citizen Kane, for crying out loud. Yeah, hard to believe that's more real regarded than the woman eater, but but we'll go on. I know, right? <laughs> what kind of world do we live in? <laughs> uh, the actor's name is George. Is it Caloris? Am I saying that I, right? I guess so. Yeah, I think yeah. so. They say it in the trailer. So if I got it wrong, listeners, it's in the trailer. Uh, George Caloris, who's our our Doctor Moran type, who is, I guess, a mad scientist type. He's the one that. <laughs> don't understand the logic how this works we have a, a tree that eats people that creates a serum that brings people back to life maybe i don't what yeah. <laughs> don't think too okay. much about it yeah 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 what now, kind of bizarre rube goldberg devices <laughs> i don't understand now remember remember those we were talking about earlier george Colaris is also in a movie the previous year from the same producer director team of the woman eater called what the man without a body yeah you know what i'm gonna play the trailer for that actually because the trailer just is the tip of the iceberg of the weirdness that movie has to be his head. Is it alive? Oh, yes, of course. All you would need for me would be a brain. A human brain. Well, it's hardly that simple. Uh, buy one. Steal one. I'll do anything. When the brain is healthy, it will never die. For even severed from its body, it continues to live, to scheme, to plot. Look! What just happened? For Carl Broussard, this means fantastic power. Now, once again, he can rule everyone and everybody, make them slaves to his venomous will. For inhuman strength, incredible might, unnatural powers, the man without a body will make your blood run cold. For it is without a doubt, without an equal, in thrills, excitement, and unbearable suspense. But talking about logic, I mean, with a guy who's trying to solve his brain tumor problem by first getting a scientist to transplant monkey heads on different monkey bodies and then decides stealing the head of Nostradamus the prophet is going to help him out. I just, of course. <laughs> yes, I mean, what? I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I got to see it. So it's on the bucket list now. Before I go, I got to see the man without a body. <laughs> it sounds amazing. You know, if I can figure out how to get my hands on it, I'll have you back on. We'll talk about it. Okay? That, that would be great. Yeah. But the main, the interesting thing for, for our listeners, for George Kolaris, is that he's Charles Foster Kane's adoptive father in Citizen Kane. Which uh, is nuts. <laughs> yes, yes. He goes and he's in that great shot of, uh, you know, of deep focus where he's discussing and deciding the boy's future with Agnes Moorhead in the foreground. And way in the distance, 
we see young Foster Kane with his fuller slay, uh, innocent, uh, as these people in the foreground are just ruining his life. And, uh, you know, it's such a great shot of storytelling and, and not just a technical triumph, although Citizen Kane wasn't the first to use deep focus, I understand, as this, this gets proclaimed. But in terms of storytelling and, and technology coming together, that's a great scene. And that's George Kolaris, who then goes on to do The Woman Eater. He worked with material from Shakespeare, Moliere, Tennessee Williams, Ernest Hemingway, Anthony Burgess. He's, he's in A Clockwork Orange, Stanley Kubrick. Uh, he was in For Whom the Bell Tolls, Papillon, Papillon, how do you say that? Papillon, the prison break movie. Uh, right. Murder on the Orient Express and The Woman Eater. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how, how did that journey go? That's, that's what I want to know. Is what led to that? I think there are two words for that, working actor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, this is how I make my living. And, um, and he also, now interesting, he did a lot of genre stuff as well. He did. I, I'm a little surprised when you look at his, you know, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, which is a Hammer film. That's I love one of my Hammer films. That's one of my favorites, favorites too. I, I'm a, I'm a sucker. I'm a fan of Bram Stoker's The Jewel of Seven Stars. And I really, I love, even though they modernize it to the seventies, which is still cool because I'm a child of the seventies sort of, and yeah, that blood from the mummy's tomb, that looks like a classic Warren comics book come to life. That's a really good way to put it. And yeah, I, yeah, I'd really I really enjoy that movie even, you know, for lack of a mummy in it, but uh we do have uh the beautiful actress in that and I forget what her name is, is Valerie Leon. Uh, That's right. Is the, is the lovely actress in that. But he's also in The Skull, No Blade of Grass, Antichrist. And uh, and he did some genre TV. He was on The Prisoner, uh, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Have you seen uh, that 1974's Antichrist? I have not. It's a creepy movie. Oh, really? That's- it is. It is creepy. It's, it's one that I actually... Uh, became aware of when I was working with Dorado Films a while back. Is it's one of their films, uh-huh. and it is it is creepy. Okay, well, I'm looking into it, that. It's now. scary. Yeah, I, I I was really impressed with it uh, for what it is. Uh-huh. Uh, cool. But yeah, he would do uh, a number of other movies. He turned up in uh, Tower of Evil, also known as House on Snape Island. I think I like Tower of Evil better. Which you know, again, it's a fun little. Well, I mean, for what it is, monster movie, horror movie. He did some genre stuff, and yeah, you know, I mean, great. I mean, he gives it a little bit of weight, I feel like. I mean, he's, he's a decent mad scientist type in The Woman Eater. Yeah, and he's also got the classic British adventure explorer look. The guy that's going out into the foreign lands for the queen and empire, and he's almost a caricature, <laughs> you know, for the look of that kind of British explorer, you know, of of the 19th, 20th century that you would think of. Well, I think when you start dealing with these lower budget monster movies and you don't have that long of screen time, you've got to start playing with, well, you know this, you're a writer, you got to start relying on the stereotypes to to develop your character. And I I feel like they did do that with Dr. Moran. Yeah, we had shorthand. (laughs) We've we've only got 71 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, we can't really, yeah, exactly. Now, he's got i think top billing in this but the name beneath him is vera day right yeah who is a, a wonderful actress with a a, a, a wonderful filmography uh, 
and she ended up in this too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, in big letters right under his name, you're a day. Uh-huh. Right. I, I don't. Okay. And I guess she still, every once in a while, appears in something, like little short films. Yeah, she's got something going on now on IMDb. Yeah. And uh, there was something that surprised me. She was in relatively recent. Was it the, oh, shoot, it was some some relatively recent British crime movie. Uh, uh, Lock, Stock, and yes, Two Smoking Barrels? Yes, uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she still pops up uh, uh, amazingly into her 80s now. But yeah, she uh, she was uh, quite a um, an interesting uh, figure, uh, shall we say? Uh, Vera was certainly prized <laughs> for her her beauty. Uh, some of it becomes comical, and uh, you know, in the woman of that scene where she's her boyfriend is working on the car under the dash, and she's in there with him in a bullet bra. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, tension mounts, oh, yeah. tension mounts because you know at any moment she could put out both his eyes, you know, with her proximity there. <laughs> and the way it's shot, it is so silly. You know, I mean, the way her, uh, you know, she's fully clothed, but the way her bosom is, it's a triumph of Nevinson, I have to say. And, uh, you know, you, you, you've got the, the guys want her to hold the light, you know, and then she says, is that better? And he looks right into her boobs and says, that looks better or something like that. You know, it's just, oh, yeah. it is yeah. just all kinds of, uh, you know, obvious, I mean, that whole scene is just an obvious setup for that. And, uh, it's far more silly than titillating, you know, <laughs> but, but it's, but it's fun. And, and, uh, she also, I think it was the same year she's threatened by this man-eating plant. She's murdered by Boris Karloff in The Haunted Strangler. And there's a scene in that where her drink gets spilled right into her cleavage. And so here comes the camera, you know, <laughs> into that for a close-up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and she, she gladly owns that. You know, she gladly owns to this day. You know, I was known for my physical attributes and... I was known as the British Marilyn Monroe, which, of course, she did a movie with Marilyn Monroe. The the showgirl and the prince and the showgirl, Laurence Olivier, Marilyn Monroe, Vera Day. By that time, she had gained enough of a reputation as the British Marilyn. Um, they put a wig on her, and they played her down because nobody was going to upstage Marilyn Monroe you know, uh, in, her, sure. in her own movie. So she just becomes one of her gal pals. But Vera does remember... I found a reminiscence of her of hers about the princess and the showgirl, which the making of that was a relatively more recent film. There was a movie made of that about the, the making of that movie. Uh, with who is that actress? Oh, um, uh, Michelle Williams. That that's it. Okay, yeah, I'm sitting here trying to blank. He's like, I, I know this person because she was from Montana, and, and, and I was living in Montana when she got big. Okay, yeah, right, okay. yeah. She played that's she her. played Marilyn yeah. in in a movie about the making of that movie. But Vera Day was really there, and of course Marilyn Monroe was infamously difficult to work with, keeping people waiting. And uh, Vera recalled that uh, the woman who was the dressmaker. Apparently, I don't know if she was trying to put Marilyn Monroe in her place or whatever, but she said that for Vera, she made this, what Vera described as an amazing figure-hugging dress for me just to annoy Marilyn. 
And uh, Vera said that, you know, being naive, she walked onto the set with this dress that was hugging her every curve, and Marilyn just gets upset and uh, starts pointing at her to her husband, Arthur Miller, at the time, <laughs> sort of thing. And, oh, man. Yeah, and, and if you, I looked a little bit at the movie because it showed up at TCM recently. What's interesting is it's a period movie. It's the 19th century, so it seemed that, you know, a figure-hugging dress would have been kind of an odd bit of costuming. Yeah, I mean, of course, they get one on Maryland. <laughs> you know, you're not going well, to sure. waste that eye candy for you paying for Marilyn Monroe. But, but yeah, but they did that apparently to, um, uh, apparently the dressmaker was getting back at Marilyn Monroe by showing off, you know, you're not the only beautiful woman on the set, apparently. Huh. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. But, uh, but yeah, but she did the Haunted Strangler with, uh, Boris Karloff and also, uh, Quatermass too. Hammer. Another another Hammer connection right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, in that one, it seems to be her, her legs for a change that they're showing off. Um, because she was a dancer, you wouldn't know it from the woman eater. You know, because she's intentionally doing that um, Polynesian hula dance terribly uh, at the, the sideshow, you know. Um, but if you see her in Quatermass too, she could really dance, you know, she does this Irish dance. And, um, in fact, the director on the commentary said that he had seen her dance on stage and that's why she was, you know, he got her into that part. And she does come as a breath of fresh air in Quatermass too. I have to say, because for about half the movie, you've been looking at guys, you know, and Brian Donnelly is the pretty one. You know, and then, uh, and but then thirty minutes. Here's Vera Vera Day as a barmaid, and she's just such a breath of fresh air. And we get her gratuitous dance, but it is so much fun, and she's so cute. And also in that movie, what's interesting, Michael Ripper appears, the perennial, as you know, hammer sure. guy, and he's working the bar like you would find in one of their period movies. You know, he's the tavern. But you kind of see him in the 50s, and you look at him and say, well, that's probably what his haircut would have looked like in real life, as opposed to one of these period movies that we see in the end. But there's Michael Ripper, you know, at running the bar like he did in the Hammer films. And uh, yeah. yeah, I think his standout moments for Hammer as an actor were the reptile. I thought he was really good in that. Yes. And then uh, Captain Clegg or Night Creatures. Oh, he's great in that too. So good. Yeah, he gets. It's a shame he didn't get to stand out more. Instead of just run the bar. So much. Yeah. <laughs> so good though. So good. Okay, so we started talking about Hammer films. Let's let's go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> let's let's switch gears back to the woman. Uh, you know, you you mentioned about that scene uh, in the car where they're working in the car. It's just so silly. I mean, every time you see the two of them interacting together, the whole sequence or the whole scene seems a little. Well, like you said, silly. I mean, the first time he sees Vera Day dancing, he's at the sideshow doing one of those, uh, you know, the carny games, shooting out a, a, a target or something. And he's not even looking at what he's right. shooting at because he's just mesmerized by her doing this hula dance thing. The whole uh, thing's kind of played for chuckles. And, and, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And she doesn't seem to mind at all. I mean, the, the guy seems so. What's the guy's name? Um, you know, I don't remember him now. I know he works on cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's about it, right? He's, he's kind yeah. of not really all that uh, memorable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, basically, that yeah. Uh, Beer he, boyfriend. 
he's very forward with her and it, and I can't tell if they had a relationship or they knew each other before he saw her on the on the sideshow or what but over the course of what a couple of days we should get married yeah yeah what? yeah that's, that's great that's great 50s movie logic isn't it uh yeah sure <laughs> yeah to get married yeah no i don't think they he had never he'd never seen her before uh, and of course um you know he gets her fired when her uh, boss is yelling at her for getting off the stage he punches her boss and gets her fired and then she shows up at his place of business with her suitcase <laughs> and having walked in high heels for miles <laughs> And, you know, so she needs a job and he does have a pretty clever line, you know, anything I can do around this part of the, you know, the neighbor. And he said, well, the, uh, the, after the, you know, the vicar's wife has closed down the demand for hula dancers, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting line, but our local mad scientist, you know, he has a maid, but she could probably use some help. And, <laughs> and so that's how our heroine is introduced into the house of Horace. <laughs> yeah. And Dr. Moran says like, why did he say this? Oh, um, well, I probably won't tell my existing housewife that y'all said she was old. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was, yeah. I'll be sure not to tell her that. Uh, and I, and is that, and I was, I mean, is the, the woman, the middle-aged woman, is that the, the maid? I mean, she seemed more like she dresses very professionally and you would think, you know, she would be his assistant or something. But the impression I got is that she is the, the housekeeper. Yeah. Uh, maybe she works like a subcontractor of, as a housekeeper. She doesn't do anything, <laughs> you know, she just gives the orders. But that actress, yeah, she's the one who has the unrequited love. Dr. Moran, and of course, she's immediately threatened when lovely young Vera, you know, and of course, you know, he says, oh, it'd be nice to have her around, and she says, you mean around you? Right. And um, <laughs> But of course, Dr. Moran has already established that, you know, he's beyond such things as he says to one police officer investigating the case of, of a missing girl whom he's fed to the plant in his basement, the tree in his basement, as a scientist, I'm more interested in things with six legs instead of two. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, well, if which you're is a great line. Which is a yeah, great if, line. If, if you're an entomologist, but you know, but but what is this guy? I mean, he's an archaeologist. He's into plants. He's, that line really doesn't fit his field exactly, and I don't believe him. You know, because oh, he. Oh no. Yeah. Now, he he talk about weird. The looks on his face when these beautiful girls are being eaten. I mean. He is twisted. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I mean, yeah, look at his expression. It's really disturbing, you know. Uh, from the beginning, you know, when we have this beautiful black actress who we're talking about who's the first, you know, the first victim that he sees in the jungle. And uh, this exotic beauty who was from Pittsburgh, as it, as it turns out, uh, Marpissa Dawn. She had that exotic quality which was enough to get her into um, the woman eater as a, you know, a, a native, a stock native to be fed to the plant. She's the first one he sees fed and he's just enraptured, you know, his expression is it, creepy. But as I was mentioning uh, earlier, you know, the next year she goes on to have the part of Eurydice in Black Orpheus, which won the Academy Award right. for Best Foreign Film and the Palme d'Or at Cannes. So to go within a year from the woman eater to an Academy Award winning <laughs> on that 
talk about a, a you know going from A to Z. That's a jump. <laughs> that she is. A, that she is. She had a really good jump. agent. <laughs> I get. I, I guess. I guess so. I mean, Black Orchid is a beautiful film. It's it's in my collection, and uh, it's a great retelling of the Orchid's myth during uh, the time of Carnival in Rio de Janeiro. And uh-huh. um, it's uh, definitely worth definitely worth. It has a very creepy scene in it, by the way. It, uh, it's really eerie. It's a well done film. It made the Criterion Collection well uh, well regarded movie, yep. uh, which is what you cannot say about the woman eater, but anyway, <laughs> uh, she, she is the first of the beauties that we see. She is the first woman of, or as I like to call them, the women of the woman eater. You know, she is quite striking too. I mean, she, she is, yeah. and, and I can mm-hmm. totally see how our young strapping lad from the Explorers Club is like, I'm not going to stand for this. He's going to go save her. Well, not yeah, quite. yeah, yeah. And boy, he, he, not doesn't, really. he doesn't do much, does he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, pal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, I mean, they use so much stock footage in this movie. And it's obviously on the cheap. But I have to give them props for their sacrificial set there. Oh, it's a good-looking set. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I mean, you could have seen it on Star- the 60s Star Trek almost, yep. you know. Yeah, oh, totally, uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, now, probably being in black and white probably helped, <laughs> but uh, True. but it's an it's an impressive little bit, you know, for something that doesn't get used that that much, you know. So now, can we talk about the tree? The tree? Oh yes, that the tree. <laughs> the uh, I, yeah, that, I, that's, I, I um, that's a tree. <laughs> I don't know. It's. I mean, I get what they were going for. Okay, I get it. But but I feel like this is in an era, you know, when you think about killer plant movies, uh-huh. <laughs> you can yeah. go to like Little Shop of Horrors, right? You right. can go to um, from Hell It Came, I suppose. Oh, even even from Hell It Came comes out looking like yeah, you yeah. know, uh, like uh, Stan Winston did it, you know. <laughs> right. It's it's such a weird looking. I just I don't know. I. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking because it's such a weird you know, looking thing. Yeah, yeah. The prop hands are all behind it, you know, with their arms and the sleeves moving the appendages, you know, to right. grab the girl. It's, a, it's like these rubber glove hands near the top, but you know, there's like uh, I don't know prop sticks moving back and forth. They wisely don't spend a lot of time looking at it. Yeah, we don't get a lot of plant, but. I mean, we do see it early on. That kind of surprised me, you know, yeah. just for a moment. You know, they did a reveal. You know, I guess the most it's perhaps lingered on is maybe the, the second girl they've lured down there to feed to it. Uh-huh. You know, you kind of get a lingering thing of it grabbing her for a while after she runs into it. Uh, that, <laughs> and did you notice that although she's supposed to have been shoved, she is obviously running uh, into the plant that she's terrified of. It's not very, very convincing. Now that actress also had a uh, a hammer connection. She uh, uh, went on to uh, be in Curse of the Werewolf and the Two Faces of Doctor Jekyll. But yeah, she has a uh, Doctor Moran stalks her down. You know, right? And a scene that made me think of uh, the brain that wouldn't die. Yeah, um, yeah, that yeah, kind of creepy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, where the guy's looking for a woman to serve his purposes, and 
uh, mad scientist purposes. Yeah, yeah, the way he stalks her. And, of course, plenty of stock footage of London in that scene, I noticed, that <laughs> <laughs> they, they they pulled out. And the poor girl, you know, has an argument with her boyfriend. And uh, Dr. Moran sees his opening and somehow talks her to go into his country estate. And, you know, where she gets fed into a plant, um, <laughs> fed into a tree. <laughs> As you complete. Do. <laughs> yeah, complete with, she does try to back out at the end. She does have a brief moment of lucidity there, but it's true too late. And I noticed that these girls were always in trances until they led them to the plant. And then they snap out of it, you know, just enough to be in terror, you know. Right. Uh, and then it's like, why didn't the trance last? And uh, what, uh, I guess I'm sure it's a lot more dramatic but, you know, you got Dr. Moran there really, you know, <laughs> enjoying the spectacle, along with his sidekick, Topanga, or whatever that guy's name was, who came back with him from the jungle. Tonga, played by Jimmy Vaughn, who's got no other film credits. I can't imagine why. I, you know, a man who runs around what looks like a diaper and does it that well, I, I can't imagine <laughs> why he didn't go off further. British film. But their relationship is weird, isn't it? I mean, you know, Dr. Moran sees this woman fed to a tree, and then we cut, we don't know how much time has passed. And he's totally somewhere else in the jungle. And there's his native sidekick, who apparently he befriended, you know, among the natives who have just stabbed to death his uh, <laughs> his fellow, uh, you know, we get over minor, we're bigger men than that. We'll go, it's all about, you know, men eating plants and, you know, ending <laughs> death for the human race. Because uh, that's his that's his philosophy. What's a few lives, you know? Right. But somehow they start a, uh, what appears to be a bromance, I guess. And Dr. Moran wakes up and they're a conveniently another expedition. You know, out in the middle of nowhere, comes across him lying on the ground. You were delirious, murmuring things about miracles. And, and, uh, and sure enough, you know, he gets up and uh, takes uh, whatever his name, Tabanga, is that his name? Tabanga. Tonga. 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 Yeah. Tonga. Yeah. Takes him back to his estate to play the bongos in the basement to reenact the ceremony as they feed beauties that they capture. Uh, although they do give them a, a nice gown to be eaten in. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they, there seems to be an official bride of the woman eater gown that these girls get, you know, an, an off the shoulder slid up to their uh, number. Uh, <laughs> they get to wear as they are fed to the monks. And uh, the first victim, I want to talk about her, Sarah, the actress's name was Sarah Lighton. Okay. And she's very interesting, although she has next to nothing to do in this movie, but be beautiful and be fed to the monster. She is one of the most fascinating people uh, who participated in the movie. She was a famous beauty uh, in England at the time, but... She wanted to be an artist. She didn't want to be an actress. She wanted to be an artist. But her dad told her, all artists starve to death. You know, you're beautiful. You're going to be an actress. And sends her off to drama school. And so she does do some acting for a while. Um, she um, became apparently the definitive Wendy 
in a production of, uh, of Peter Pan. Someone described her as James Barry's Dream Wendy there oh, in wow. England. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and she does some so just a few movies and, and some TV, and um, her dad's plan kind of backfires on her the on him though because. She goes to join a troupe in South Africa, a repertory company, and she falls in love with Africa. And she, while she's there, you know, she loves, she's inspired by the light there and she's the landscape and the people she's taken with them. So she goes back, she's drawing them, you know, every spare moment she's drawing Africa in some way. And when she comes back, she's pretty much done with acting and goes to, uh, to art school and becomes an artist and she's good enough to get into the Tate gallery, but some Italian master that I've never heard of Pietro Anagoni, uh, she has a chance visit meeting with him and he looks at her works and says, you'll be good, but you'll never be great unless you leave London and come to Florence and study with me. And so she does. And it works out extremely well for her. The Ford Motor Company in Europe picks her on assignment to go to Africa, back to Africa, and uh, make illustrations and write non-fictional accounts, which starts her as a writer. She becomes a writer. Uh, in fact, uh, she, I don't know my information on the Internet. I, I'm sure it's dated, but uh, she was working on a novel of another painter, a man named Hans Holbein, uh, who was part of the court of Henry VIII, who was known as the man who painted souls. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so she was working on a historical novel, and her grandchildren, and so this is relatively recent, uh, her grandchildren inspired her to do another children's book. She'd already done some children's book illustration, including a Winds in the Willows edition. Uh, but she did an original book for her grandchildren called The Double Waddled Bumble Yak and Other Curious Creatures, which sounds very J.K. Rollins uh, <laughs> to me. Very yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. But her big claim to fame was as a society portrait painter. She became so good that she got the assignment to do the British Queen Mother at 80. And she was so big that she could afford to turn down Muhammad Ali and Elizabeth Taylor. Her portraits are just, you know, she's just incredible uh, as as a portrait painter, or, or she was. And she was in a terrible car accident, I uh, read, in 1964, along with a female bullfighter who was being painted by her, having her portrait made by her. And it nearly killed her. And uh, apparently it also injured her famous face somewhat. Oh. Um, but... You know, by that point, as far as looks helping her in acting, I think she was pretty much done with acting anyway. Sure. And she, but she remained enough of a celebrity that she was appearing on British game shows and stuff on into the early seventies. Or she was, you know, so well known, uh, and um, still as a great beauty and uh, as as a celebrity. Although she didn't, as I said, ever did ever did much acting. And I think it's interesting that she was a very early outspoken feminist. We're talking the early '60s, and you know the modern feminist movement doesn't kick in until about ten years later in the early '70s. But in the early '60s, you know she's she's a very outspoken feminist. And when I look think of that and look at her role in the Woman Eater. 
Uh, it is as antithetical, <laughs> you know, to a feminist movie, female movie part you can get. A scantily dressed beauty, not one line of dialogue, presented as essentially mindless, uh, who's only there to look sexy and be helplessly acted upon as <laughs> she's fed to the monster. <laughs> you know, <laughs> her role there, perhaps her great, her most, if she's famous for any movie role, it's, it's this one. And it's the most, you know, antithetical to her position on women as you can imagine yeah but she did write an autobiography called of savages and kings so she met a lot of had a lot to do with a lot of famous people interacting famous people spent some time in the middle east painting and so um this lady you know sarah Lighton, she's in the movie for less than five minutes and uh you know she's featured in the lobby cards and promotional materials because she's so strikingly considered so strikingly beautiful but she has next nothing to do with it, and she's one of the most fascinating people. And she has a book about her life. You know, if anybody wants to look into it, um, certainly be probably a good read. So, sounds like a fascinating life, and wow, the journey for you know. And it seems like this movie seems to be one of those points, either the end or the starting point for the, how did these people either end up here, or how did people get from here to something <laughs> else, right? Right. So. Right, I think the people ending up. You're talking about the the Citizen Kane. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Although it was sort of a tunnel experience for him because he did after this, he survived it enough to you know uh, twelve some years later, you know in the seventies, uh, he's working with Kubrick uh, in Clockwork Orange. It's uncredited, but he's there. Right, and uh, he's on Murder on the Orient Express. So. He survived, but yeah, uh, you know, the days of the Mercury Theater <laughs> were long behind him. <laughs> and um, But at least he was a has-been. You know, I mentioned to you earlier the actress who plays the well-dressed housekeeper uh, who has a crush on him, Joyce Craig. Uh, she had a very short career, only going from 1951 to 1963, according to IMDb. And her next movie after The Woman Eater was Nudes of All Nations. And <laughs> Yeah, and, we were uh, talking about and, that. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> and uh, I, I you know, I'm pretty sure she did not get naked in that movie. But interestingly enough, that seems to have ended her film career in nineteen sixty three. So so, you know, yeah. as bad as as bad as it is to be the name on the marquee <laughs> for the woman eater after having worked with the Mercury Theater. There are worse fates <laughs> as an actor. Nudes of all yeah. nations. When, when uh, Micah yeah. mentioned this earlier, I went to the IMDb to look it up because, you know, it's important, you know, research, you know, whatever. And the Total synopsis is simply old-fashioned nudist romp. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay then. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to those newfangled nudist rocks, right? Because you don't want any of that. I mean, uh, come on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. get mom and the kids <laughs> together and you know, pull out your VHS of this old-fashioned nudist rock. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> where do we go from there? Okay. <laughs> Well, you know, we might talk some more about the movie. I mean, yeah, the why don't we go back to the movie? Let's go back to the interesting, but... <laughs> um, I, I actually really ended up 
digging the movie. I mean, we're laughing, we're joking, we're cracking jokes about it, but uh-huh. I, I actually ended up enjoying the film. And the, the synopsis, the story isn't overly deep. I think listeners can kind of suss out what, what happens in the film just based on what we were talking about. They they go to the jungle, they find this plant, this guy brings it back to his home, he throws uh-huh. women into it or women run into it, and he tries to make a serum from that to bring people back to life, and he's got this this native guy who seems to have just as much fun watching the women die as Dr. Moran. The look oh, yeah. on his face, this creepy grin that he gets. I think we know what they bonded over. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Two men from such two different worlds come together (laughs) over, you know, murder watching women die horribly. Yeah. It's a bromance. It's it's something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. But uh, now what about the the police investigation of the story? This was something that that kind of left me a little, you know, like, what? The actress I was mentioning before, the the famed beauty, Sarah Light, even though her part is small, uh, her disappearance triggers off the police investigation, you know, which, you know, leads to our, you know, intense climax as the walls begin to close in from all sides on Dr. Moran and his mad plan. But did you, could you understand the, the guy who comes looking for saying, you've seen this woman and he pulls out a glamour shot of her, which is, <laughs> is interesting, but he says, he says, she's a famous, did you, under, I couldn't understand what the guy was saying. Did I you understand that. No, I didn't really either. I didn't understand the relationship or what was going on there. Yeah. She's a faint. What? And then, you know, you see him drive off and stop and scratch his chin. Like, Hmm, I wonder if this guy's on the up and up. And the next thing you see of the cops, there's a broken fence. They're like two feet away from it in a field, looking in the field. And I see a broken fence. I think, well, are they looking for a car that went? There is nothing. And then they cut back to headquarters and they're like, the field is here. Dr. Moran's house is here. (laughs) It's like, what, what are you, what dots are you connecting? You know, what evidence? (laughs) This guy is suspicious because the girl was last seen close to a broken fence in an empty field. And on the basis of this, Dr. Moran is, I I tell you, the the Sherlockian logic of it was uh, (laughs) beyond me. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't understand the uh, the leap that he was making there. I was like, I, I don't. I don't under. No, you, what? Yeah. Why would you associate? I mean, why would you? There's a broken fence that that's got to do with a disappearing girl. Uh, later on, they say there's something of a struggle that apparently broke the fence. You know, but then it's later toward the end of the movie that they finally found a piece of her clothing in a bush. But, you know, they didn't find it in the field, you know, that they're looking, they're searching for. And they're like, something like, yes, and that bush is in a straight line to Dr. Moran's house. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, that, sure. so there, now, now it's, yeah, yeah. And they do cover the base of, we took it to the people she was living with and they identified it as part of her clothing. And, um, so yeah, the, the whole police case, I still don't get it. I mean, the broken, a broken fence. 
<laughs> a missing woman, they must be involved. Sure. An empty field, an empty field. Yeah, you know, that's got, you know, murder and kidnapping written all over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the police uh, element here seems to be, um, yeah, not very competent. Um, or, or they make these, you know, they're, they're like a plot device, really. I mean, we're not, maybe if they had fleshed that out a little bit longer, we would have had a longer film and, and they didn't want to go that long. I don't know. It just doesn't oh, make yeah. sense. The leaves don't I, make I, I sense to me. I've, I'm, I'm just been spoiled by all these procedural shows that come on, I guess. I'm just, I'm expecting hey, too much. You and me both, yeah. man. You and me both. Yeah. The only thing I can imagine is that there's some principle of idiot savant at work here. Uh, in, in detecting crime. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, they had to have somebody for the, the I guess at this point, fiance. <laughs> <laughs> to run to and I've got to see the cop right. now. I've got to, where is he? Well, he's not here. Can I help you? No, never mind. And then he just leaves. <laughs> if you're worried about your this woman disappearing, you're not. <laughs> only one particular police officer can help me. Not the one who's there. No, no. Yeah, and you leave. You think your your fiance. You know, you've been engaged for like a day. A woman you've known for two weeks. Uh, that you met, you know, doing a hula dance at the carnival. Uh, and yet you you leave her, you suspect she's in that house, but you leave her to go get the cops. You know, giving Dr. Moran time to, you know, kill her if he wanted to. You know, I mean, why don't you say, well, I'm not leaving this house. I'm searching every room till I find her. Well, what's Dr. Moran going to say? I'm going to call the cops. Good. Do it. You yeah. Know? That you know, but again, suspense would not rise. I guess if if that was the case, you know, sure. Uh, without a lot of pointless running around, <laughs> so, something like that. <laughs> yeah, of course, Doctor Moran's not calling the cops. So. No, uh, no. Uh, but by the way, how did you like his mad scientist pulsometer? Um, for uh, I mean, it's labeled that that when he's trying to get the heart going, you know, from the juju juice from the tree that revives the dead you know i, I need me one of those is what i need is yeah, you know, pulse meter. i thought that was pretty cool actually yeah it's probably a trademark uh, apparently uh <laughs> you know, there's a supply shop that mad scientists can get their pulse meters you know along with their jacob's ladders and bits and burners you know sure sure <laughs> 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 no, I liked that. I want, I want a little pulse meter. You know, the the mad scientist, the mad lab. It's it's weird, man. I mean, you've got the pulsometer, the pulse, excuse me, the pulse meter, and all the other equipment, and then you've got this juju tree, and then you have a little corner where your assistant sits cross-legged with some bongos and just goes to town on. <laughs> what a weird little setup to have, and then. At the end, when everything starts to happen, and spoiler, he does bring somebody back to life. I actually uh-huh. found that to be pretty unnerving. Yeah, I actually—I was going to say that's creepy, isn't it? Yeah, the way she yeah, moves and the way uh, she comes uh, up. And, she she looks. Yeah, and all that writhing under the the sheet. Yeah, uh, I have to say that actress who went later went on to Nudes of the World. Uh, she gives <laughs> the most effective performance more effective as a dead person than a, than a living one, you know, uh, as, as in, in her part. Uh, yeah, she's creepy. She's really good. I mean, I, I know they're throwing back to like Frankenstein's monster and that sort of thing, but I also, in a former life, I used to do a zombie movie podcast and it made me think of 
the the first time we see a zombie in the movie zombie starting to stir underneath a sheet just that kind of creepy what's really happening under there will she reveal herself come on stand up no don't stand up i want to see it but come on stand up it's it's right. good it's really good and she's doing this weird stuff with her hands yeah you know what's going on with that and i thought it was in of course you know of course i guess maybe we're to back up for the listeners this this uh zombie is the former uh over-the-hill housekeeper. <laughs> Over-the-hill. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, middle-aged, who has been nursing this crush on Dr. Sander. And you don't know if they were ever really an item, and he you know, got tired of her but just kept her around the house, or if this is, she's just been nursing a crush all this time. But you know, she's awful jealous of, of Vera Day. I mean, who wouldn't be? Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then, you know, he tells her, I'm sending you, I'm thinking of sending you away, you know. And she gets all pitiful. Oh, please don't send me away. She just, you know, calls this house of hearts. And then I'm going to send you away. No, don't send me away. And then finally, I don't know what he does. It pushes her over the edge. But she comes at him with a pair of scissors, right? Right. And he sees her in the mirror and he strangles her to death. And right as she's at the moment it expiring, he apparently realizes he has feelings for her after all. And then she drops dead. There's just some strange relationships in, the, in this movie. And I did think it was interesting that when she attacked, she goes for Vera Day's care. Right. Part of the, the thing, and I wondered if this was a stab at colonialism. I'm probably reading too much into the, the makers of the woman eater. Okay. But when the native says, you know, the brain is for us. That in other words, yes, you know, Dr. Moran, I've wasted five years of my life to be the greatest man in the world. Yes, I can bring the dead back, but they're mindless. And of course, not only are they mindless, they're homicidal when they yeah. come back. He, <laughs> he leaves that little detail out. And the native says, the brain is for my people. You know, we know how to bring them back and everything's hunky-dory, but the white man doesn't get it. You know, that that's our secret. You know, I wonder, is this a, you know, anti-colonialism statement? moral that we're getting from the woman eater at the end you know i mean it, it is a british production and you know they, yeah. they did have a, a habit of going places and saying it's us it's ours yeah that's the first 10 minutes of the movie you yeah. know them going out you know taking a secret that's not theirs although the guy seems to be willing to share it for five years and it's almost like you know you know tanga man you know you've spent five years of your life just for this moment that's the long game, the long, long game of revenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to say, ha-ha. Of course, you know, he was getting a lot of enjoyment out of watching women be fed the tree, so it wasn't totally down <laughs> you know, that, that, he, that he took for himself. But yeah, yeah, and you know, at that point, the movie really kind of cranks up into being a horror movie for the first time. Yeah. You know, 70 minutes into a 75-minute movie. Uh, it gets a little scary. True. Yeah. And, you know, the places you could have gone with that concept. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine this guy bottling this stuff and it's spreading through England and nobody knows? Yes, you come back, but you come back a homicidal zombie. But nobody knows that until after lots of people have been doing it. Right. And so now you've got a, a plague of zombies in London. Yeah. I mean, this is all beyond Eros pictures. 
<laughs> budget, <laughs> I'm sure. You know, I mean, they they knew, they showed they knew how. Well, actually, excuse me, Fortress Films Productions budget, but they knew how to work some stock footage. You know, sure. And uh, you had the potential. You know, if you had moved that up and made them successful, and they actually start canning this stuff like preserves, like jam. You know, uh, who wants to bring their dead loved ones back to life? You know, well, who doesn't? You know, if you're making that stuff available to people who can afford it and you're naming high prices and there's a black market for, you know, juju tree juice and juju tree juice. uh, (laughs) I mean, you know, there could be, I mean, maybe Tabanga or whatever gets his own little side business going. You know, it's just zombies are everywhere over London. I mean, you know, this. Uh, pardon the pun, but this plant movie has the seeds of uh, <laughs> greatness. Of greatness. Oh. Of greatness. <laughs> 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 yeah, it, it it could have been a contender. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, as a as a sad zone, I th- I think you're right. The end of it, it does start to get creepy and. If if only that creepy had bled into the rest of the film. I know a lot of it's all set up, and we've got to you know, have all these moments to kind of get to this end. But overall, I found the movie pretty satisfying for what it is. And, yeah. and I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> um, but no, I, I did find myself enjoying it, and I, I I would watch it again, and I would recommend it. Yeah, I do too. Just for like I say, there is just enough goofiness about it, if nothing else, to entertain you. <laughs> this, uh, watching the different, you know, how they try to make a plot come together. And, uh, <laughs> this, and just so much bizarreness. And uh, there are some, you know, pretty ladies in it. And, um, again, the guy who was a major character in Citizen Kane, you know, to see what happened to him. These guys, like you said, they were either on their way up to something or fading out of something. The the woman eater is sort of an intersection of some talented lives. Yeah, as it, as it turns out, of all things <laughs> to be, you know. <laughs> well, and I'm a fan of British horror as well, and I know when you think British horror, obviously you go to Hammer or Amicus uh-huh. or Tygon, right. but this was. Still, you know, an interesting uh, exercise in British horror, and I, I think it's fascinating on that level, too. I think there's a lot to enjoy in this. So, I mean, as much as Micah and I are kind of joking and having a good time talking about it, it's still an effective little chiller once you get to the end. Yeah, that last moment, you got to see it. Like you said, I mean, we both found that woman <laughs> unnerving independently Yeah, uh, of our independent viewings. We thought she was pretty creepy yeah. there. At the final moment. Now, you had recommended this movie because of the killer plant angle. Right. Um, right. What is it about killer plants that you, you dig <laughs> that, that's, you know, do it for you? Yeah, that's that's just kind of crazy, isn't it? I, uh, I came across a quotation a long time ago, and I wish I had it now. It's in my magazine boxes somewhere, an old issue of Cinefantastique. Uh, they quoted the great B-movie monster maker Paul Blaisdell. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yes, you know, who has the famous carrot monster with fangs from It Conquered the World. And he had a quotation that was great where he said something like, uh, 
well, you know, there's some vegetation on earth you'd be pretty uncomfortable around. Something like that. Okay. And I thought that was just, yeah, strange. Yeah, there's some really creepy vegetation on Earth. Uh, on the wrong left, you wouldn't want to be alone in a room with that plant, I guess. Huh? But it was an interesting quotation, you know, coming coming from him. Uh, why plant monsters? I, you know, uh, that's that's a good question. And what is the appeal in general? Uh, there's a whole subgenre. There must be something in the human psyche that we have a fear of of plants turning on us. I I don't know if it's because they're so alien to, to, to human life. Maybe it's just the whole notion of the we know there are plants that eat living things, you know, that trap them. Huh. That's unnerving to me. I got to admit in nature that in, in nature there are plants, you know, that suck the life out of living creatures. And if you extrapolate that... <laughs> You know, uh, to a horror movie proportions and triffid invasions and (laughs) things like that, you know, they're walking around. It's an odd thing, but apparently the movie makers have come back to it over and over. And so I don't know exactly what what it is and, you know, what is its appeal to me? It, It seems like it should be all rather dull. Uh, but, uh, I know that, uh, as a kid, I was a big fan of, um, the Marvel monster man thing. Oh, there um, you go. There you go. Yeah. But, but, but you know, he never, back then he never really struck me as being plant life. I never really understood. It seems to be more like swamp thing. Okay. But I will tell you that when I did the research for the frequency of fear and I started looking into plants there is some crazy stuff going on with plants in the real world. I mean, I f- and I use this in my story, but I found out that there are plants that if you are attacking them, you know, if you're cutting them down, they will release a scent that will draw bees or some kind of stinging insects to attack you and to defend them. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that bizarre? And there are plants that will imitate the appearance uh, if they are a good edible plant for animals. There are plants that will mime the appearance of bitter plants so the animals won't eat them. So there seems to be this weird alien consciousness almost in plant life. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I know there's not. But it's just so strange that you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't think about this stuff. But there it is, and and that's real. So you add some imagination to that, and plants become pretty viable monsters. <laughs> yeah. Us, yeah. You know, I mentioned a uh, little shop of horrors. You know, you've got things like that. Uh, Day of the Triffids, obviously. Yeah, you have that, and Doctor Terror's House of Horrors. There's that sequence with the plants outside. So. I mean, it's something that you do see yeah. turn up in a handful of movies. I'm not sure what it is either, but there is something like these benign creatures turning on us. Yeah, and I was just wondering who started it. Uh, huh. did, I did not even think to try to research that. Who did the first plants turns on humanity? I know that the thing, you know, in the movie is presented as plant life, isn't it? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The original thing for another world. Yeah. But how is it? Have you, I have not read who goes there. God, I read it once years ago. It's been so long. 
I was I wonder if it was a vegetable based creation in that pulp story, if that started it all. There was a pulp story, I believe it's called Dark Destroyer or Black Destroyer, that starts the genre of aliens hijacking a ride on a spaceship and killing off the crew. Okay. Uh, you know, that we get on from it, the chair from beyond space and queen of blood. And then on most famously with alien, but that goes back to a pulp story. Um, so maybe the plant genre, you know, evil plant genre goes back to the, the pulps. Uh, uh, I don't, I don't know or what the first movie was to use a plant monster. Um, well, listeners, if you have any ideas, I, I'm curious. <laughs> Mike yeah, is curious. Yeah, so let us know. It is interesting. Yeah, somebody had to be the first. True. Uh, True. To do it, or at least have a you know have the idea at the same time. But what inspired them? You know, I I would imagine whoever did it looked at a Venus flytrap. You know, sure. That was and that was where it came from. And uh, did you know that Venus flytraps, as exotic as they seem, that they just grow? You can probably tell from my from my accent. I'm a child of the South. I live in North Carolina, and um, the uh, Venus flytraps uh, only grow around the North and South Carolina border. You know, you would think they're from the Amazon or something, but those plants, that's the only place on Earth that they are indigenous to. Huh. Weird. You know, as a monster kid, you'd think I'd know something like that just because it's, ooh, creepy, you know, plant, eats bugs, you know, but no, I just have no idea. I had huh. a pet Venus flytrap when I was a kid. Oh, wow. <laughs> you could get them. Yeah, yeah. yeah and stick, you know, the fun thing was just stick my end of a pencil in there to trigger it, you know, and just watch its jaws snap. You know, that's, that's what we had to do for fun before we had mobile phones and Angry Birds. You know? <laughs> we had Venus flytraps to play with when I was a boy. Yeah. <laughs> Right on, right on. Yeah, so if you mo- if your mom's not letting you watch House of Dracula, you'll play the Venus <laughs> Trap. Is that what it is? Well, yeah, she wasn't all bad. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, this has been a blast, man. I- I've really enjoyed chatting with you and having you on oh, the show. Oh, yeah, a lot of fun. Uh, and-, and I'm a fan Great. of what I've read of yours. Uh, I-, I highly recommend The Frequency of Fear, and it's available on ebook as a Kindle for 99 cents. Yeah, you can't go wrong. No, no. I mean, since that's what, what does it say on TV, that's less than a price of a cup of coffee or something. I don't know, whatever. It's, it's, but it's much more satisfying. I'll, I'll tell you that. Well, thank you. <laughs> no, I, I really dug it. And like I said, it mentions the fear change. Come on. I mean, th- that's one of the things that I love about having new pulp writers on the show, you know, you or Frank Schildener, is you can see all these different influences right right there. And it's it's just so enjoyable to, to have that kind of woven into these stories. Right. And I mean, I love it. I'm a big fan. Do you have anything coming up that you can tell the listeners about? Uh, well, I, uh, I have a new Becky Sharp story that will be coming out in an anthology from a wild huntsman press, small press put out by a gentleman named Chris Nigro. And, uh, he is putting out what we believe is the first anthology based on the character of Dorian Gray. Oh, and so Chris asked me if I would do one of my Becky Sharp stories. Now, Becky Sharp, I guess I need to come clean. I didn't, and this would be common knowledge a hundred years ago, but unfortunately the book has fallen into obscurity. Becky Sharp is the villainess from the novel Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray, who was in his day what rivaled Dickens. Okay. Uh, but today everybody knows Dickens and has forgotten 
Thackeray, but Becky Sharp, pretty much S. Scott Fitzgerald saw her as uh, basically the prototype for Scarlett O'Hara. And uh, Becky is very amoral character. And in my stories, Becky becomes an agent of Lovecraft's great race. <laughs> the aliens in the future, you know, who possess people, uh-huh. you know, mentally and, yeah. and all that stuff and the shadow time. But they can't possess Becky. Uh, there's something in her brain chemistry that won't let him possess her. And so there is a rogue element of the great race who's not supposed to be interfering and uh, because Becky is off the grid uh, that can't be accounted for, they use her as uh, as an agent. And in The Elder Jew Adventures of Becky Sharp, they have told her that, because the story starts, Becky's a 19th century character. They told her we've seen this menace called uh, Tulu, uh, who's going to emerge uh, in the 20th century, and uh, we need you to put a stop to that. And, of course, you know, we start in 1845, basically, and into 1925, and Becky is still full of vigor and youth, and there's a reason for that. I give her a lot of longevity. And my story that's coming out in this new anthology, uh, as I mentioned before, I have a Tarzan versus Karis in that book. <laughs> uh, and uh, Becky crosses over with, with Kong, uh, with Sherlock Holmes, uh, also, uh, with Br'er Rabbit, believe it or not, um, and the characters from Rumpelstiltskin. Well, yes. What? <laughs> uh, yes, yes, it all, it all oh, makes okay. sense. Yes, just, yeah, <laughs> get your two ninety nine edition, uh, and, uh, and you'll see that it, it all hangs together. So she's a crossover kind of gal. And in this story, she crosses over with Dorian Gray and, uh, the great race has her on the case with what's going on with, with Dorian Gray and um, this, uh, well, I guess I don't want to give too much away of, of my story. No, don't, no spoilers, man. Yeah, yeah. And there's a tie-in also with uh, The Man Who Could Cheat Death, uh, another Dorian Gray Hammer figure, film, yeah. You know, although he has, he has his own means, right? Who, interestingly enough, uh, is based on a story written by a guy who took his pen name from a William Make Peace Thackeray character. Wow, okay. Uh, <laughs> he was the creator of Becky Sharp. Yeah, so that was an interesting bit of synchronicity. So I have that story coming out. I'm also finishing up a story that I'm going to be submitting to an anthology uh, that another one of your former guests, uh, a good writer, uh, uh, Pete Rollick, uh, oh, okay, yeah. is putting together. Yeah, Pete had a great concept that's a uh, spins off from the uh, Robert W. Chambers King and Yala. So uh, there's a he had a great concept that that uh, uh, showed up in one of his uh, short stories, and it was just a super idea. And uh, 18th Wall uh, Productions, another uh, press, small press, they're going to be putting together an anthology based around Pete's concept. And I'm working on a story that I'm going to be um, submitting to that. Uh, so that's what I've been laboring on up to this moment. Right on. Now, Pete's, Pete's a good guy. That's awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. And I'm, uh, deadline is looming in. And uh, so I've really got to finish it up and and let it go. And then I've also been a pretty regular contributor to Tales of the Shadow Man. Right. I'll be working uh, most likely on a story for them. For their edition, a short story that will be coming out, I have my own sword and sorcery character, Brom Cromwell, 
who uh, in my last, the last edition of that, I did a story called The Goat of St. Elster. And it was my attempt to kind of do, you know, okay, what if there had been a Solomon Kane movie directed by Terrence Fisher for, for Hammer? <laughs> uh, and uh, so Brom Cromwell, though, is, uh, is has his own backstory, and he, he's more of a monk. And he actually ties in with a French horror classic, Mal Pertwee, which uh, actually uh, they made a film of in the early 70s with, with Orson Welles, briefly. <laughs> Coming back to our Citizen Kane theme, yeah. uh, he, has a, he has a small appearance as a dying wizard in it. So I'm doing a follow-up uh, to that story, although it's something of uh, prequel. So uh, I'm working on that uh, for the next Tales of the Shadow Man. So those are my my current things. I'm wanting to get back to some longer projects, uh, including, of course, my Frozen fan fiction. So. <laughs> well, best of luck with that. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> So I've set up a tiny URL, which is one of those shortened link things so you don't have to go through the slash this, a thousand different numbers, slash that, tinyurl.com slash frequency fear. That will take you straight to the Amazon listing where you can pick up your own copy of The Frequency of Fear, that really cool story by Micah. You don't have to have a Kindle in order to read it, but you do need to have the Kindle app on your device or smartphone if you don't already own a Kindle. You can even use the Kindle software on your computer so you can read it there too. There's no excuse for you to pass up this. I mean, it's, it's free. It's a great story. What do you want? Anyway, Micah was awesome to chat with, and I had a really good time talking with him about The Woman Eater. He and I will be getting together again when we talk about that other movie with Nosferatu's head. Not Nosferatu, Nostradamus. Nostradamus' head. <laughs> Big difference. Um, but yeah, we'll be talking about that at some point as well. And, you know, I could chat with him about the new pulp and the writing and all that as well, being a fellow writer. I'm looking at his other work on Amazon, and all of it looks right up my alley, which means it's probably right up your alley too. Something else that he's involved with, and we didn't talk about this because I don't know if this was happening when we actually recorded. He's also writing for the website 18th Wall Productions, which you can find at 18th Wall, and that's the number one and then eight and then TH and then wall.com. He writes a column over there called Just Like in the Movies. And not too long ago, his fourth installment of that column was just called In Pursuit of Dracula. So, you know, he was writing it for us, right? So go check that out as well. I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes too. Micah, again, thank you for being part of the show. Really appreciated having you on and we'll have to have you on again here in the near future. of the Triffids, when terror reigned from the sky. The day of the Triffids, when the Earth orbits into a nightmare. When the solid world of everyday reality disintegrates. The whole population is driven by fear towards insanity. 
the day of the Triffids, when destruction closes in from every side. Pilot, is he blind too? It's going to be starvation, fire, pestilence. Anyone caught in the middle of it doesn't stand a chance. I think we ought to get out of here and go on to Spain. How can you know it's any better there? I don't. It doesn't seem to have any central nervous system. Then how does it move? All plants move. And they don't usually pull themselves out of the ground and chase you. You have never been married? No. Why? I guess I've never been in one spot long enough to get caught. And now you are saddled with a family. It might have its points. The day of the Triffids, when law and order are overwhelmed in an avalanche of terror. This is Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. How about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans. Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horror Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. Oh, wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horror Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. of a great city to the last desperate refuge of millions underground. The incredible, monstrous H-Man strikes terror to every heart, disintegrates everyone it touches. It kills, but can't be killed. The most incredible man you never saw. Deadly byproduct of the H-Bomb blasts, dooming mankind to oblivion. 
We are facing a situation which cannot be minimized. Complete extermination. Did you start yet? Yes. Masada went into the sewer. Where? Right there. A great city fight back. Commence operations. To stop the deadliest killer the world has yet encountered. See the top double thrill, double chill motion picture program of the year. Curse of the Werewolf in color. The harrowing story of the legendary half-man, half-wolf. His evil beast blood demanded he kill, kill, kill. Plus, the shadow of the cat. A shocking adventure into murder and psychotic fear. Two terrifying hits together. Don't miss them. I want to take a second to talk a little bit about podcasts real quick. I was really... Really excited when I found out that the Hollywood History Podcast, you must remember this, was going to be doing a series on Boris and Balon. It was going to be launching in October. It was going to be a six or eight part series. I'm really looking forward to it. Karina Longworth is the person behind the You Must Remember This podcast. And she does a phenomenal job digging up all sorts of incredible information and putting it together into an easy to listen to podcast. I was excited. I started listening to it and I don't know if it's a little bit of a genre bias, as some people have said, or or what, but there does seem to be a very obvious slant a couple of different ways. Uh, one way, which has nothing to do with the subject of the podcast. I'll get to that in a second. It's clear to me that Karina is a Boris Karloff fan as opposed to really enjoying Bela Lugosi, and, and I get it. You know, sometimes you're team Bela, sometimes you're team Boris. It's really easy to pit them against each other because that's kind of sort of what the studios did. And it was really just kind of part of pop culture. There was an episode of that TV show Rivals, which I believe was an A&E show. Not really sure. I don't remember, but you can find it on YouTube and Amazon. That was Boris versus Bela. They used the trailer from, I believe, The Black Cat, where they're playing chess against each other. Your move, Dracula. Okay, Frankenstein. You know, it's a cute little promo bit. Were they really rivals? Were they really antagonistic toward each other? I think over the years, it's been pretty much proven that a lot of that was hype. I do think Karloff felt bad or felt pity for Lugosi, and I think Lugosi probably did have some jealousy or some resentment about how his career went versus how Karloff's career went. But did they really actively dislike each other? I I don't think so. And I think a lot of film historians, at least those historians that play in the genre that we love so much, agree. However... For whatever reason, Karina really plays up that that rivalry in her show. And, and that's fine. You're doing a compare contrast kind of thing. You, you got to compare them somehow. If you don't show up the differences, then it's all samey-samey. The other thing that she has a really obvious bias against is Lon Chaney Jr. She is so anti-Lon. Anytime Lon Chaney comes up in regards to any of the films that Boris or Bela were involved with, specifically the Universal films, she does not miss an opportunity to talk about how terrible he is as an actor. And I'm not a prude, okay? I know Monster Kid Radio has not really gone to the explicit side of things, and that's by design. Well, Karina's podcast doesn't necessarily go down that route either. However, while she's delivering a very well-thought-out segment about 
Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, Universal monster movies, that sort of thing, to take an opportunity to just say Lon Chaney effing sucks. Just to throw that in there, it really kind of graded. It really almost discredited her a little bit because that's just too easy. That, That really doesn't show that you're capable of describing you know what? I'm going down a path that I probably don't need to go down. Anyway, do with that what you will. Overall, I still enjoy the show and I'm still subscribing and listening. Just kind of keep that in mind. I, I bring this up though because I want people to know that Monster Kid Radio and the You Must Remember This Podcast are not the only places that you can get your classic monster movie fix right now. I mean, obviously, you've got the usual suspects, the classic horrors film club, and when the B Movie Cast puts something. I mean, there's a lot of other regular podcasts that I'm sure you're listening to, but I wanted to shine a light on what the BBC has recently done. And as of this recording, there's only 18 days left to listen. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. I'm assuming this recording is going to get archived somewhere. I don't know where or how, but go check it out. It's Hammer Horrors, The Unquenchable Thirst of Dracula. Basically, they're taking an unproduced Hammer Horror film script, fleshing it out, changing it a little bit, and then they produced it for radio. There is a narrator to cover some of the camera action and, and character movement, but for the most part, it's it's acted out, and it feels so good. It works as a Hammer Dracula story. It goes some places that I didn't expect it to go. Mark Gaddis is involved with this. He may have been the director. Anyway, go check it out. It's really good. And again, as of this recording, only 18 or 17 days left to listen. It's about an hour and a half that you're going to love giving to the BBC because it could have been a Christopher Lee Dracula story. <laughs> witnessing a biological chain reaction, a geometrical progression of deadly mass. It had started casually, insignificantly, as momentous events often do. Look there. Two points off the port bow. The giant behemoth, the fire-spitting monster predicted in the Bible, its core a mass of lethal radiation. Rising from the depths of time, its strength enormous, its gargantuan ferocity a threat to London, to the world itself. We must find a way of destroying this creature in one piece. Judging by the beast's size, I would say it was powerful enough to drive a battleship. Of course, its tremendous electric charge is what projects the radiation. That's what makes the creature so deadly. Have you any concrete suggestions? Yes. First, block off the Thames.
comic book fans, I'm Joe Stuber, producer and host of Comic Book Central, where each and every week I welcome a legendary talent to the Comic Book Central lair to talk about bringing comic books to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. She is Erin Gray. Erin, welcome to the show. I ended up being a contract player making, I think it was $600 a week. Gil was doing great. He was making the big bucks. You got the posters, though. You got <laughs> yes. the posters. Come I on. look better in white spandex. What can I say? Hey, this is Michael Rosenbaum. Lex Luthor from Smallville. Make sure you listen to this guy's show. Sounds like a good guy. People should listen to you, Joe. Catch the very latest episodes at the website, comicbookcentral.net. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, and be sure to join me each and every week for Comic Book Central. This is Dean Kane, Superman from Lois and Clark, and you're listening to Comic Book. Comic Book. Comic Book Central. Where comic books come to life. Excelsior. Now, from the makers of Sinbad, Columbia Pictures presents Jason and the Argonauts. The mightiest band of warriors the world has ever known. Turn back, Jason! We're trapped! Sailing to the ends of the earth, battling against an incredible number of obstacles. Where will you find this miracle? I have heard there is a tree at the end of the world with a fleece of gold hanging in its branches. In search of the fabulous magic golden fleece, Jason and the Argonauts, caught in the clutches of the towering bronze giant Talos, battered by treacherous falling rocks, taming vulturous harpies, facing the dreaded seven-headed hydra, battling the merciless army of skeletons. Jason and the Argonauts, the classic story of Jason. A man who challenged the gods. Medea, a temple dancer who betrayed a kingdom for love. The Argonauts, the mightiest band of warriors the world has ever known. Jason and the Argonauts, a classic adventure story. Brought to the screen through the incredible special effects magic of Dinorama. Jason and the Argonauts, the search that became a legend. Okay, before we wrap up, there's one more thing I want to talk about briefly. Well, there's a few more things, but one thing that just recently happened, Universal, the Dark Universe, what's going on with that? I got a number of messages from people on Facebook, thanks Tom Doffel, about the Universal uh, thing, the Dark Universe, the shared universe that they're doing, and that the two big, I guess, showrunners of the Dark Universe, Alex Kurtzman and then the guy from Fast and the Furious, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, They've walked away. They're no longer involved in the project. Now, what does this mean for the dark universe? Well, most industry insiders and really outsiders too suspect that this is the end of this particular iteration of the dark universe. Yes, the mummy did eventually make up its money overseas. Yeah, it did get some decent reviews in some places, but did it make the splash that I think they were expecting it to make? No. And based on some things that I've read and heard, 
Tom Cruise probably wasn't the best choice to get involved in a monster movie franchise since there's a lot of creative control conceits that have to go to the Cruise camp when he gets involved in a project. And well, his vision didn't really mesh with Alex Kurtzman's vision. So what does that mean for the mummy? Well, it's probably at one and done. I don't think we're going to see any more dark universe stuff. I'd love to be proven wrong, but I, I think that's pretty much it for a little while. Give us what another five years and then maybe they'll start over again. Uh, the dark universe take three. We'll see. Who knows? But there's been a lot of talk online from people who think they have a better idea as to how the Dark Universe project should have gone or, or could go, including people like Stephen E. Sullivan. And, and I agree with the sentiment that some bona fide diehard monster kids with a proven track record when it comes to creativity and producing work should have been involved from the very, very beginning. Not people who make blockbusters, but people who love monster movies, monster kids. I saw names like Del Toro thrown about and, you know, it would be cool to get him involved, but he's off doing his own thing. The Shape of Water is practically going to be his take on Creature from the Black Lagoon anyway, isn't it? So get somebody who's really into it and then run with that and then see what happens. Who knows? Dark Universe R.I.P.? The other big announcement that's happened recently was the announcement of the new Christopher R. Mim movie. As you know, on Halloween, he announces what the next project's going to be, and he's finally going to do the Western, or, <clears throat> excuse me, he's finally going to do the post-apocalyptic spaghetti Midwestern for his 13th film. He's going to keep mixing things up by throwing the Mimiverse 150 years into the future. Not the past, but into the future for his Midwestern for a movie he's calling Guns of the Apocalypse. I'm going to play the audio for that right now. It didn't have to happen. But it did. It could have been avoided had we just talked to each other. But we didn't. And then, the bombs fell. audio cast Chris recently talked about his struggle to get to the Western it's been something that people have been talking about for years but didn't really do it for me and doing a Western it wasn't really his thing but when he got his idea for doing it as a post-apocalyptic Western that that makes a lot of sense and, and he brings up a really good point that the Western isn't necessarily confined to cowboys on horses and prostitutes with the heart of gold and the bars and the gunfights and the saloons and all that I mean, yeah, that's a Western, but there's a vibe to the Westerns. Watch early John Carpenter films and you'll get that Western vibe in outer space or it's uh, Antarctic or at a police station in modern day. It's a vibe and I can't wait to see what he does 
with that vibe, with his patented mim magic. See what's going on. Check out the Mimiverse audio podcast for more information. You can find that over at sainteuphoria.com. Again, link in the show notes. Actually, I think St. Euphoria is in the permalink section of the website. So go check that out. You can subscribe to that podcast through iTunes. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. And finally, I mentioned the caption contest. You know, it's still open. November 15th is the deadline. That's next week on Wednesday. Get over to monsterkidradio.net. Check out the picture of me and Barbara Steele on stage from the Lovecraft Film Festival and CthulhuCon and submit your caption. If you are the winner of the caption contest, you win a prize. A Monster Kid Radio prize. A package including at least two movies and some other stuff. So yeah, head over to monsterkidradio.net, check it out and send your caption submission to monsterkidradio at gmail.com. This does bring us to the end of this episode. Finally, right? Enough with the jibber jabber. Let's wrap up and tell you what's coming up next week on the show. This is going to be a lot of fun. Another new voice on the show. I'm going to have Andrew Roebuck from Bloody Good Horror is going to be on the show to talk about Two movies, kind of, sort of. We're going to compare and contrast the Japanese version and then the American release of a kaiju film, Gamera, or Gamera, the Invincible. Pounding across the motion picture screen comes the most terrifying monster of them all, Gamera, the Invincible. Gamera, the super monster that even the H-bomb cannot destroy. Gamera, the Invincible. Gamera, consuming raw atomic power, power to destroy entire cities. Open fire! Man's most destructive weapons have no effect on Gamera the Invincible. The mightiest nuclear weapons ever devised are powerless against Gamera the Invincible. Is humanity doomed? Will the world be destroyed? The United Nations is called to emergency session in a last desperate effort to save the world. We have one plan that we think might work. We have discussed Plan Z with the Japanese authorities, and they agree it is the best of our alternative plans. Is that correct, sir? That is so. Plan Z is hope of the world. A cast of thousands at the mercy of the most terrifying monster that ever lived. Brian Donlevy as General Arnold. is beyond comprehension. He must be stopped now. Albert Decker as the Secretary of Defense. Will Plan Z stop Gamera? Gamera, the Invincible. Andrew loves his giant monsters, and we're going to be talking about that next week on the show. So come back for that. And then the week after that, we've got The Creeping Flesh with Dan Day Jr., Jeff Owens, I'm sure you'll be listening, right? Okay, <laughs> so that's happening as well. Of course, I announced this in a graphic that I released on the website over at monsterkidradio.net, which is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes, up to and including the contact information that I mentioned earlier. We have an email address, monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can send me a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. A couple of weeks ago, Former guest of Monster Kid Radio and dear friend of the show, Jeff Pollier, used that voicemail line to call on his thoughts on Scarathon 2017 from October at the Joy Cinema. I'll be sharing that with you guys and gals next week when I also share with you some thoughts about Scarathon as well. So you've got that to look forward to, too. 
We have links to everything that we've talked about here on the show in the show notes. So check that out and make sure you let everybody know how to find Monster Kid Radio through our website or on iTunes. You know, if you're an iTunes user, please consider giving us an honest review in the iTunes store. We also have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. You can join the group and like the page if you could. We'd really appreciate that as well. And of course, there's also a link on our website where you can fill out a questionnaire to potentially be a guest on Monster Kid Radio. If you are interested in being on the show, that's how you do it. Or just drop me a line on Facebook because I'm always there. Big thanks again to Micah Harris for being part of the show this week. And thanks to you guys and gals for listening and making Monster Kid Radio part of your audio diet. Really appreciate it. And I appreciate the band Day of the Dead for letting us play their music here on the show. Go check them out at Day of the Dead and then the number one dot bandcamp.com or dayofthedead.com.au to check out their music. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. With the exception of that song, all the original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. My name is Derek Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.